Welcome, listeners, to www.ironradio.org, the website and podcast for all things strength sports and sports nutrition. With your hosts, Lonnie Lowry. Remember, Phil is like a gnarled old oak tree held together with scar tissue and bone spurs. Rob Fortney. And I'm telling you, the pain that I would suffer was beyond excruciating. And Phil Stevens. Do it, Rob. You'll kill all those nerves. Thanks for listening. Good morning, everybody. Go to strengthguild.com, S-T-R-E-N-G-T-H-G-U-I-L-D.com. Scroll down to the Iron Radio Collections, and we've got new shirts and new banners for you to support the show. Everything from just a regular banner, regular shirt, to ones with sayings on them, like Lonnie's Phil is like a gnarled old oak tree shirt. And some news for you, we're going to have some contests for people who own these shirts and things. So if you support the show, we'll let you more on that later. So if you get in on these early, you can be one of the first people to win some prizes. So, thank you very much. Go check out the site, strengthguild.com. Scroll down to Iron Radio Collections and support the show. Welcome, Iron Radio listeners. This is Lonnie Lowry. I'm an exercise physiologist, I'm a sports nutritionist, and I'm a former competitive bodybuilder. And this is Phil Stevens. I own Strengthguild. I'm a powerlifter, Highland Games athlete, and just all around crazy guy. Nice. This is Dr. Mike T. Nelson, associate professor of the Kerrig Institute and creator of the Flex Diet Cert, Physiologic Flexibility Cert, and it's minus nine right now. It was minus 11 when I got up this morning. That's <laughs> Fahrenheit for all you non-US yeah. people. That's right. <laughs> yeah, we do have to think about that, yeah. I know. <laughs> <laughs> oh, all right. Um, we have a little bit of, uh, we have some questions, we have actually a little contest that I thought we might start, I'll mention. Um, then we're going to talk a little bit about something f- that was on the forums that we mentioned last week about sodium intake and assessing your adequacy as far as your intake goes. Then after the break, we'll talk about speed, speed work. Um, we'll call it speed kills redux because we've, we've talked about speed work before and you know what Phil means when he says speed kills. Uh, but, you know, also what are the, some of the benefits of it? Um, the contest, I just it's, – it's on the forums. Those of you who are on the forums, uh, you could just go to why join. And we were talking about perks, you know, like what are some fun things you can do. And one was well, why don't we do some p- contests. And I know I've got some Iron Radio keychains and buttons and T-shirts left over. And, um, Phil, I mentioned you could make anything you wanted. <laughs> yep. So – Anyway, uh, the idea is just a haiku contest. I've been brewing this for years, and with the forums, we have a chance to do it. Now, I'm using haiku in quotes because I know there's some other requirements for a true Japanese haiku, right? But I'm just thinking syllables, right? Five, seven, five. A three-line, real brief kind of thing. Um, We've already got two people who have commented here. Uh, It's Sean and Gabby. Um, <laughs> so here's what here's what let's see this first one was Sean um, Iron Radio Lonnie Mike and Phil are cool we miss the fortress <laughs> so that's <laughs> that was his Gabby um, I like the coffee reference wake every morning drink coffee and hit the gym listen to the show <laughs> so that was good nice. so I have a sort of epic example on there but you can also send it by email through ironradio.org in fact 
Um, because, I mean, if you want Fortress to see what you say, the email Iron Radio at ironradio.org, there's a link. That goes to Fortress, and then he just sends it to me, you know, rarely with any commentary in true Fort- Fortress style. <laughs> <laughs> He's still upright, so that's good. But then he'll call occasionally, be like, brother, man, I miss you, you know, and it's like, well, you know, I, I, you never know what you're going to get with Fortress. <laughs> mm. uh, anyway, okay, so there's the contest. By all means, anybody, um, I guess forums would be preferred if you could do that, uh, or email through ironradio.org. I thought that'd be fun, because we haven't done a contest in a while. Um, listener question here. So there were a couple things that came up, and this was sort of an academic discussion, but it does sort of beg for some input here. The person was looking at um, scientific journals from science societies versus what I would call professional journals, you know, that are a little bit more application-based and more for maybe the coaches and that kind of thing. But uh, he said, is periodization overplayed in NSCA journals, and is protein dissuasion overstated in dietetics journals? Again, kind of getting at this idea is it once get, something gets folded into the professional scope of practice, you know, does that hurt the scientific, the neutral observational approach of even critiquing something maybe where it's due? Um, Mm-hmm. Mike, let's let's ask you just first. What do you think about either periodization or protein dissuasion being overplayed in in practitioner journals? I would say probably. I mean, just the exposure that I've had, and you know, that's not a knock against any of the organizations or anything like that. But I think the <clears throat> the thing that gets thrown out all the time is just the context in either scenario you know in protein are you talking about some type of pathology or kidney disease are you talking about healthy people that want to lift weights and maximize you know accretion of muscle mass right i think in a lot of the discussions that's the thing that gets left out and is probably the most critical piece and on periodization is it someone who is just starting out who thinks they need the 17 step you know russian secret squirrel periodization plan for (laughs) a lot of money or they just need to go to the gym and do some volume (laughs) so i think that the context gets left out even when you're reading some of the studies too i think sometimes either authors or maybe it gets edited out or it drops out in peer review or who knows like even in the studies themselves they don't i think mention in the application section who this may be for you know, they're trying to say that, you know, this is for maybe athletes, but, you know, athletes at what level? The college level, the pro level, people just wanting to train in their garage. Um, so, yeah, and I think anytime you're trying to question something that's been around for a while, it's going to be a little bit of a uphill battle for, for some time, too. Yeah, I mean, let's face it. I, I don't want to give the wrong impression that good science isn't the foundation of getting something published or in print and, you know, and whatnot. But, and at the same time, there is some element of politics involved. Like I would send an article uh, in defense of high protein diets to the journal of the ISSN long before I would send it to uh, a dietetics journal, right? Just because a lot of time, yeah, those clinicians are used to withholding protein from renal patients, for example, you know, if someone has hypertension and diabetes, 
or they have pre-existing renal damage, well, then their kidneys, that organ is damaged, uh, and I'm probably not going to pump them full of unnecessary huge amounts of protein, right? In fact, in the past, Mike, you've talked about how uh, plant proteins, you have to eat maybe twice as much sometimes, um, and that would be one of the classic no-nos, I think, that they would say, no, don't do that, right? You can only have so much protein before you know you're putting a lot of extra work on a damaged kidney so we're going to keep this to some very high quality stuff instead of just putting a bunch of nitrogen load on somebody for their kidneys to clear and i don't want to get into too much of it but the brenner hypothesis we talk about that in that book that mike and i wrote phil's on the cover of the dietary protein book but it suggests that if you ask an organ to do a lot of work that's stress and therefore damaging but the Brenner hypothesis never really panned out. I mean, anybody no. in exercise knows that if you ask your biceps to do some extra work, it hypertrophies to meet the need. I mean, that's kind of our sport. Uh, it doesn't just fall off the bone. I think we've seen kidney hypertrophy in some athletes you've looked at too, correct? Uh, well, I, I hesitate to even comment on it. But definitely, like, if you have a, a kidney removed, the other one can hypertrophy to kind mm-hmm. of you know, yeah, compensate. Yeah, just do the work, yeah. Yeah, stuff like that. Um but now, I think part of this question came from, I think there was a student who was <laughs> kind of coming at the professor, and you guys are going to snicker at this, and saying, well, in the <laughs> hypertrophy mesocycle during periodization, your answer was 80% of one rep max for volume, and I said 82 or 85, so you're wrong, uh-huh. and, and I'm right, <laughs> and, and he's kind of snickering. He's like, listen, the point is relatively heavy and more volume. I mean, that's kind of the point for hypertrophy, you know, and it was that sort of obsessive attention to some very strict number that you can't deviate from. And that's why I thought, Phil, you could talk about, like, obviously, as a veteran coach, you're not going to obsess. No, no, we're at this point in the, you know, power phase. Um, We can't deviate. Mm -hmm. Um, How do you deal with that with your people? Mm. And I've written about like periodization and stuff for numerous times, but um, just some context. I mean, I think the I, I'm not a hater of periodization. I think a good plan is needed. Mm-hmm. Um, it's just like a map going anywhere. Like if you're going on a trip, you probably want to know how to get there. Um, so we draw a map, but you have to be ready to deviate from said map because my problem with periodization is the same: is that it's all planned out, and I can't tell you if. Uh, I don't know. Gina is going to come in this week and have a bad day. Yeah. <laughs> you know? And I planned, well, you got to do this. I wrote it down four months ago. Right. It says you have to do this. <laughs> you know? um, that's my problem. Right. Yeah. So basically we build in outs, you know, either, either we, we have a, a backup plans, you know, either. Okay. Bad day. We're going this route or good day. We're going this route. So I'm, I'm a big fan of, Strike when the iron's hot. But that said, I uh, we do what I call buy-ups. You still have to do the day's work that was written down if we're going up. So we do that work first. And if you kill that, then we've earned the right. It's not just, a, hey, I think I feel good today. You know, I'm not taking it your word for it. Show me. Mm-hmm. Once you show me, okay, we'll do a little extra work. You know? So, um, and then if it's a bad day, generally if it's one bad day, I'll just have you, let's say, I don't know, somebody's scheduled to squat 405 for five sets of five. And they're warming up, and it's just obviously not good. Uh, we'll just go right to the assistance work, get the hell out of the gym. 
if yeah. this happens two times in a row, uh, like say say this Saturday, bad bad squad day. Next Saturday, another one. Now we okay, what's going on? And we adjust the whole plan type of thing because if it's happening two times in a row, then essentially we've we've outstepped our bounds most likely. Mm-hmm. So a one time thing happens. Everybody has a bad day. So. But yeah, you just need to be ready to. I, like I said, I don't mind periodization. I think you need a plan, but have have backup plans in place for either good or bad. Uh, because I think you're selling yourself short. Let's say you're having you're just crushing it one day, and and you don't take that chance to get that extra volume or that extra intensity in that that you're able to that day. I think you're selling yourself short, and then I also think you just see a lot of injuries. People trying to stick to this plan. Like, it's on paper, I must do it. Oh, I tore my hamstring, damn it. You know? right. yeah. It's okay to back off, too. So Makes sense. That's kind of, it's very yeah. scientific, I think, when you say demonstrate, yeah. right? Because um, in science, unless you're willing to upfront say, I'm speculating here, you know, I'm always telling students, demonstrate, don't speculate. Because that's yeah. the difference between professional opinion and observe and record you know and you're having them demonstrate that stuff so yeah that sounds very solid yeah. to me yeah i have a similar concept i call gated training meaning that if you're doing good and we've got good history on say your bench press and here's your your three lead-up sets and then you do you know 155 at five 165 at five 175 at five then maybe you get to go to 185 right if that's yeah. kind of the plan we're going to where people are like, but I did 135 for six. I want to take 185 right now. It's like, mm, no, we want you to go through these specific steps, get some accumulated volume. If you crush all of that, then, yeah, now, like you said, Phil, you've earned the right to go mm-hmm. up and you've demonstrated that you probably can handle it. Yep. So you're trying to set them up for success. And you want to have some volume in there over time, too. Well, yeah, and the other thing I like about it is I really try to change the mindset with people. People usually come to the gym with a mindset of, of kicking their own ass, yeah. Like, and that's their, that's their sign cool. of a good workout. And I want us to be the ones kicking ass, not the workout. So I mean, so if we could, if you can get through the work I had written down and you just crush it and you feel great, that's a win, man. Mm-hmm. And uh, you know we can go up a little bit, and we're not going to the point where you're just crushed, but where you're still winning. And that's like, okay, we did a little more. You still hit that. You know, in good form, fast. That's enough. Let's move on. Yep. So, yep. but I want people to. They generally look at extra work as a bad thing. I want you to look at it as a good thing and something you have to try and get to. So, yeah. reward. Yeah. 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 It's a use stress model, right? You're applying yep. enough stress to get the adaptation that you yep. can recover from in a relative short amount of time. And I find that that's having a coach for that is is much more essential than yeah. the distress training where you just walk into the gym and smash yourself in the face and crawl out. It's like, eh, yeah. Yeah. that's not going to go so well after a couple of weeks. <laughs> you know, maybe with muscle magazines going away, I'm sure it's just moved online though. Um, there'll be less of that macho tendency to do that, right? Like yeah. annihilate your pecs and devastate your quads. And is that really <laughs> the goal? Um, sometimes I guess, but yeah. I, yeah, I get it. <laughs> yeah. Mm-hmm. I always think of that as more of competition type day. You know, if you're doing like feel like a Highlands game or a strongman meet or a CrossFit comp or even powerlifting meet, then 
I don't really care that much as long as you're healthy how destroyed you feel for the next couple days because you can just take a bunch of time off and that was the thing you trained for and it might suck but you don't want to be doing that every day in training leading up to it because it's going to be a disaster yeah yeah 100 percent of your yeah perceived exertion every single time yeah um you know what once i even maybe i'll put on the forums i I wrote an article called inconvenient truth and it the there was a a tc emailed me he's like you opened a shit storm and it's (laughs) because of the political right and it's like listen i'm just using it as a metaphor you guys that sometimes data is contrary to the powers that be oh yeah and so if you find data, like, for example, uh, there was a recent paper. I'll have to pull it for next week. But apparently, and this is secondhand, but uh, the, the paper found that uh, protein intake was inversely related to kidney damage, I think. So it's like, oh, boy. So that's like the opposite, right? Wait, more protein is better for my kidneys? So, yeah. uh, again, like you said, we're talking about population specificity, right? I mean, what? What population, what context are we talking about? And uh, that's just how. Yeah. And even, I mean, I have a study I helped with with Dr. Ben House, Tommy Wood, and and Ryan, where we took, you know, rather advanced lifters. It was done in uh, Ben's place in Costa Rica. We had them come in for four days in a row, and we measured, you know, velocity, work. It was about a two-hour session each day, so pretty intense. And the hypothesis was, you know, more intermediate-level meatheads, like, what happens if you just kind of smash them every day for four days in a row? And we're like, this is like super interesting. There's not a ton of data on that doing the exact same thing. Uh, but mm, we have to try a little harder. But so far, editors are kind of un- <laughs> uninterested in that question. But <laughs> we'll figure out a way to get it published. Right. So. <laughs> right. Yep. All right. Um, well, there's a contest. There's that um, specific question. The other thing in the early part of the show here is uh, about sodium intake and assessing sodium needs. And it was a hard question. In fact, I asked around to some strength coaches that I knew and professors and they're all of them said the same thing. Gosh, I never really thought about it because you're just, you're on autopilot kind of, you know, mm. your hormones handle this stuff. Um, but let me read you a couple of uh, quotes here. I pulled a couple of papers. Strength and muscle sport news. Um, Partly, I didn't want to overstate when I said that you don't really look at serum sodium. Well, you don't look at it by itself. I'm not saying it's never helpful at all, but let me show you a couple of things here. This first one is a 2019, it's sort of a position paper from the European Food Safety Authority. So, um, let's see, Dominique Turk, T-U-R-C-K, and many, many colleagues couple of quotes here. Urinary sodium excretion in 24-hour collections is considered the most reliable biomarker of daily sodium intake. Homeostatic mechanisms maintain the plasma sodium concentration of healthy individuals within a very narrow range. Hyponatremia, not enough, right? And hypernatremia, too much, are typically related to disorders affecting water and electrolyte balances. They are seldom due to inappropriate sodium intake. So hmm. that's kind of what where we're going with that. Uh, here's another one. This is from the True Consortium. So this is multiple countries. Norm Campbell uh, headed this up. He's Department of Medicine uh, up at uh, University of Calgary, I believe. 
Um, but a couple of things here. Approximately 93% of ingested sodium is excreted in the urine. In fact, it's been shown that uh, ingested sodium is exponentially excreted within six hours. Uh, and further, even with acute intravenous administration, most sodium is excreted within five to 10 hours and all within 40 hours. And again, so they point to aldosterone and different hormonal mechanisms for this, right? You have mechanisms to keep your sodium in a very tight range. So they also suggest uh, perhaps multiple 24-hour urinary sodium assessments. Well, the problem with that, of course, is collecting someone's pee for 24 hours. Man, I've done this with protein work before. But (laughs) people are like, oh, I forgot, and I peed some in the the toilet. bro. Right. (laughs) Well, then you throw that one out. Um, but anyway, so I get it. It's, it's what's being dumped in your urine. A couple of other quotes here. This is from Susan Whitmire. This is back in 08, Nutrition Clinical Practice. There is no predictable relationship between plasma sodium and total body sodium content. That, that's pretty flat quote right there. Here's another one. Let me, let's look at hyper and hyponatremia. This is from Bruno uh, Voigt, I think, V-O-G-T. I'm not sure how to, I'm probably destroying that. But usually hypernatremia, so again, too much sodium, is caused by a relative water deficit or reduced water intake. Only in rare cases does hypernatremia become caused by excessive sodium intake. And then they point to drugs and hormones as the cause. And I think that's what I was trying to get at is, yes, you can look at your sodium levels, but it's always in relation to volemia, right, to how much fluid is on board. I mean, you know, you see these guys walking around with gallon jugs of distilled water. Well, you chug half a liter or a liter of distilled water, and you just dilute your sodium content temporarily. That's hyponatremia, right? But again, it's related to volume. Uh, if you look at too little sodium, here, this is from Mary Ansley Buffington and Kenneth Abrio. Hyponatremia, a review. It says, determination of the etiology of chronic hyponatremia requires analysis of serum osmolality, volume status, and urine osmolality. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's for hypo, another hypo. Hyponatremia, a problem-solving approach to clinical cases. This is from Asadi, is the last name. Hyponatremia, defined as serum sodium concentration below 135 millimole per liter, often develops as a consequence of elevated arginine vasopressin hormone, so antidiuretic hormone. Inappropriate secretion of AVP, volume depletion, Post-operative states, heart failure, cirrhosis, and neuroendocrine disorders are typically, uh, you know, the cause. So, again, they're not really pointing to, oh, look, I have a spot uh, serum sodium that's low. My intake must suck. Here's one. Exercise-associated hyponatremia. I like this one because it gave the prevalence. So you might be thinking, I'm sure I'm low sodium. This is an athlete specifically uh, hyponatremia occurs in 2 to 7% of participants. So you could, depends on how you look at that. You could be like, that's significant enough to concern me, or you could be like, that's single digit and that's very low. It says exercise-associated hyponatremia is caused by a combination of excessive water or hypotonic fluid intake. That's what I was talking about, the distilled water, as well as high levels of arginine vasopressin, which limits the ability of the kidney to excrete water. 
In most cases, exercise-induced uh, hyponatremia uh, has minimal or absent com- complications. Again, this is clinical stuff, and I, Phil pointed out last week, this doesn't mean optimal performance or how well you feel necessarily. And then this last one here from, uh, looks like British Medical Journal, from Hugh Butler and colleagues, dehydration is how you define it. A comparison of 318 blood and urine athlete spot checks. So again, 318, they looked at collegiate athletes. They looked at serum, uh, osmolality, thirst, and other things. This is what caught my eye. Normonatremia. So serum sodium between 135 and 145 millimoles per liter was maintained in 99.7% of athletes. Wow. So a lot of this stuff, again, just trying to suggest that it's under tight hormonal control. It's always related to are you underhydrated or overhydrated? And I just wanted to kind of offer some references there. Uh, I put those on our forums as well. Just to kind of give you the idea, because I didn't want to walk away with anybody saying, Lowry said, don't look at serum sodium. Yes, you can look <laughs> at that. Yeah, you can, but not by itself, right? Because your kidneys are and your hormone system is built to shed um, the sodium that you, you, you take in, essentially. So, Do you know, even in like heart failure patients, does that even get that dysregulated? I know their whole... Fluid balance gets completely hosed, but you see, you know, massive changes in renin, aldosterone, angiotensin. You see massive edema, fluid accumulation, all that stuff. But to me, those are all side effects almost of the body trying as hard as humanly possible to still hold that concentration in the blood. Does that make sense? Uh, Yeah, I I remember uh, just from working in the hospital that, yes, we would withhold fluid. Uh, from yeah. CHF patients, and I think uh, a lot of that has to do with, with if your cardiac output is really low, you don't perfuse the kidneys enough, right? And it, yeah, right, exactly, and it creates this sort of loop problem. It's just a yep. very complicated issue, you know. And I mean, even some of this stuff, I didn't read the quote, but even diet logs they say are a bear to try to really get a handle on, unless you monitor this like repeatedly because of the amount of sodium. Uh, like we were talking about before we started recording, the amount of sodium in a bagel could vary hugely. Uh, and Mike, you had a great point. When you salt food, nobody's really measuring how many milligrams no. that is. You know, when you say I salt to taste, <laughs> that, that's all over the okay. place, right? <laughs> uh, so even diet log wise, it's it's hard unless you're doing some sort of repeated monitoring. So no wonder, let me bring this back to the beginning, no wonder so many of the coaches and professors I talk to, they're like, I never really thought about that. It's just something that handles itself, you know. Um, Oh, and I did want to say one other thing. In defense of higher sodium, in my travels doing this little search here, it is really quite controversial. I think you guys know this, but I was kind of updating myself. It's really quite controversial whether sodium restriction really helps blood pressure that much at all in normotensic yeah. people, right? If you're, yeah, if you're very debatable. Yeah. I mean, literally, I was looking at numbers like one or two millimeters of mercury down, you know, in yeah. systolic or diastolic pressure. Now, they said black folks or so African descent or people that are already hypertensive, there's probably more of a benefit. You're, it's more likely maybe that you're sodium sensitive. But I was really surprised, right, because, I mean, there is more – controversy and back and forth 
than you would have guessed. I mean, if you just listen to like the textbook approach, right, is that sodium reduction is good. You know, the DASH diet, stuff like that. But people forget even the, the dietary approaches to stop hypertension diet. That does lower blood pressure, but they're also pushing low-fat dairy, right? And that's going to get you yeah. calcium and fruits and vegetables, so maybe magnesium. Micronutrition, yeah. magnesium, yeah. Yeah, it's not just avoiding something like sodium. It's also seeking something like calcium or magnesium is going to bring down that blood pressure. So if you're the kind of person who likes approach strategies, and I typically do, that you know you're like I'm not going to cut my sodium. Well, then maybe look into the you know trying to get a little extra calcium and magnesium, maybe that or potassium, of course. Maybe that can help offset um, some of your your hypertension. Yeah. Unless the super short point is that it's better now, but there have been several athletes that have died from hyponatremia, basically drinking so much plain water. Usually, it was in the case of marathon runners that they actually died. So if you go the other route and you try to just massively consume huge amounts of water in short periods of time, granted you have to do, you know, usually a couple gallons per hour. It's very high. But there have been cases of people who have done that because they've depleted out so much sodium in a short amount of time that they've actually died. Exactly. Yeah, that really underscores the point about it's always related to volemia, right? So their serum sodium is going to drop because they diluted the heck out of themselves. Um, What I was looking at was suggesting even something like a liter. And I think about the bodybuilding kids that I see walking around. They're not even competing, and they're walking around with distilled water. And I'm like, well, don't That's what I was thinking, too. Yeah, like don't chug that, bro, uh, <laughs> because you could uh, sc- screw up. The, again, yeah, electrolyte balance is complex thing, and you are screwing with it. Like you said, if it's acutely your – are these water drinking contests you hear about, and people die. So yeah. um, water isn't specifically toxic, but if it's just H2O, and I mean, even tap water is going to have some minerals in it depending where you live. Um, so, yeah, it's just a complex issue. Okay, so that's enough of that nonsense. Uh, we'll go to break, and when we come back, um, we're hopefully Phil, especially, but Mike, I know you're into this too, and I'm, I've only had exposure to speed work through what it might do for bodybuilding purposes, but we'll talk about uh, speed kills and we'll see what people think about it. Hello there, ladies and gentlemen. Yeah, yeah, you know who this is. Uh, so I'm here to tell you about uh, Dr. Mike T. Nelson's uh, new book, uh, Why You Should Eat Keto. I don't do it because, I mean, look at me. Come on, I'm fabulous and I'm fantastic. Anyway, you should text the uh, Keto ebook all in one word to 44222 to receive your free copy. Do it, do it now. Iron Radio is, of course, primarily a podcast. But over the years, there have been technical glitches calling for backup streaming and listeners who wanted the convenience of other sources of audio content. Toward this end, Iron Radio is now simulcast and backed up on YouTube. If needed, please search Lawnman07 or Iron Radio from within YouTube. There's not much video, but if you like to listen through YouTube on a Roku or other living room device, there you go. Okay, listeners, 
After more than a decade of joining us on the podcast airwaves, you can now also become viewers on YouTube. This is not our usual simple backup of the audio show, but rather a growing body of video taste tests covering various foods of interest to nutrition enthusiasts, bodybuilders, and powerlifters. From within YouTube, simply search for Iron Radio Taste Test or Nutrition Radio Taste Test. In about 15 minutes, we cover taste and texture similar to other products, uh, usefulness to the co-hosts, and whether we would recommend the product to certain clients. You may even want to watch our podcast feed or Facebook group for which products are coming down the pike so you can taste test them with us. Join us for this new monthly project. Like your weekly fix of Iron Radio? In addition to being a popular institute on iTunes... We are also on email. Simply go to www.ironradio.org and sign up for the voluntary email. You'll get a once-per-week email, no more, that's little more than the show notes and a link to the audio. So go for it. All right, folks, we're back. It's Mike, and it's Phil, and it's Lonnie, and we are going to talk about speed work. Uh, and I'd like to start with maybe a description, Phil. What do you and other coaches mean when you say speed kills? Oh, God. Well, I mean, this can go into any – I mean, rightly so. Like in, in regular sports as well, team sports and things like that, I mean, it's it's even more so than lifting. Um, basically, a faster, stronger athlete is going to win. So, but as far as lifting goes, um, like in powerlifting, I use like to use it because basically it's heavier than all the other lifts. So the only reason when I'm deadlifting 750 pounds or whatever it is, uh, it's the explanation that the only reason it's going slow is that it's freaking heavy. <laughs> I'm trying to move <laughs> the bar as fast as possible. In the powerlifts, they call them the slow lifts, but the reason they're slow is because they are maximally heavy. You know, at, at a point in a powerlifting meet, you're going to get to, well, hopefully we're going to get you to like 100% on your last lift. Like that's all you got. And of course, that's going to be kind of slow, depending on the lifter. I have some lifters that are very explosive and like they'll crush 820 and we put 825 on and they get plastered. So, um, <laughs> and that just depends on the lifter. So, and then there's people that are more grinding, but, um, what we talk about mainly, I think the main thing that's missed is it's not so much just moving the bar quickly, but the neural and muscular adaptations to do so. Um, in order to move a near maximal load quickly, you have to train your body to turn everything on. Um, and that's what we're doing with speed work, um, getting your body to be efficient. I, I don't have the exact uh, numbers and the uh, the study in front of me. But I know there was a study done some years back of, you know, lay people versus elite powerlifters. And the lay people were somewhere around having the ability to recruit 25% of their muscle fibers in an area at one time. And the elite lifters were in like the 80% area. So basically they were able to recruit 80 plus percent of their muscle fibers at any one given task in a split second. Whereas the 
lay people were only able to turn on about 25%. So they were, uh, lifters were able to exhaust everything they got with a single bout um, or a single rep. And that's what we're looking for. That's a trained adaptation largely. Um, some of that is genetic, but uh, we can learn to get more, oh, what would you call it? Uh, efficient, I guess, at, at lifting weights. So, And we do so by always lifting weights quickly. So um, once we have form down, that's the that's one caveat. You know, I don't want to see a lift. Oh, that was a really shitty fast lift. That's great. You're just going <laughs> to hurt yourself. So once we <laughs> once we get uh, once we get you know technically sound, then now let's start turning on the power uh, type of thing. Because the average person, and I, this is no knock on on females, but I can tell you, females in general, when they come in and they're new to lifting. Um, if I put 65 pounds on a squat bar, they're literally going to give me like 66 pounds of pressure to stand up, uh, just enough to get the job done. And, um, over time we want a lot more than that because the problem is then it's like the minute it feels heavy, it's like, uh, I don't know. But if you're crushing <laughs> things as you go up, uh, you, you generally do a lot better. And then one of the big arguments against moving weights quickly is it's cheating uh, like you're cheating yourself out of work, this and that you're moving it fast. So then it makes it easy. The rest of the lift easy instead of like doing a slow eccentric concentric like four, one, four or whatever you want to do. Uh, mm -hmm. you know, four seconds down, one second pause, four seconds up. My argument against that is how is it cheating when I'm the one that made it go quickly? Yeah. You created so, the force. <laughs> yeah. I created the force. So, I mean, if anything, I'm actually giving more effort. Like if I have, if I have, 585 pounds on a squat bar and I squat down and I exploded up to the point I damn near come off the ground. I've exerted a large percentage over 585 against the bar. So, um, without having to go to that. And that's the other reason I like is cause we're able to go to, we're able to push maximal efforts. Let's say like right now, my best squat is 722. I can, I can put on probably 80% and put that much effort out without having to go to 722, which even though I have the capability to do that, due to the fact that it's so close to my 100%, my chances of injury are exponentially greater than if I exert that much force against a load that is not that mentally and physically daunting to me. So we're able to get that, that maximal effort done at a much safer load. If that makes sense. Yeah. Do you find that's mentally even easier per se to know that the load is sub max and you have kind of a room for air, meaning that the worst case scenario, you're still going to get the lift. It's just going to slow down where yeah. if you're at oh. a one rep max. You're, you're screwed. <laughs> yeah. It's make it yeah. Well, and it's also, I mean, even in my warmups, like today we are in my last, I've got three more squat sessions before a, a meet. So, uh, you know, unlike a lot of people, I'm not going to go up higher in my opener from here on out. There's yeah. no point. What I'm looking to do is move that as quickly as I possibly can. That's going to have me physically ready without beating me up too much. And mentally, if I can crush seven, I, in my head, I've already done oh, 750, you know, yeah. <laughs> type of thing. 
um, and that's even day to day on warmups. You know, once once my really light work's done, I'll do slower work. At like, there's no point in me trying to move 135 really fast because I'm yeah. I'm literally going to be dumb. <laughs> so I'm just going to look like an asshole trying to hurt himself. But w- <laughs> once weight starts getting a little heavier, um, and that's why I tell people like people will come up to me when 315s on the bar. Well, how, how's it feeling today? I don't know yet. You know, I can't tell you. Tell usually it's right around 405 mm. squat. It's getting enough weight on the bar that I okay, I know how this is going to move for today. Yeah. And I usually make the call on a good day with with 405. Um, from about that point up, I can really push against the bar, and uh, and that's getting me ready for each set. You know, if I just crush 405 like I should, I have no problem mentally. Okay, throw another plate on. Yeah. If I do the same with okay, throw another plate on. <laughs> now if I if I barely if i'm squatting 495 and i give just enough to to get the job done how do i know i'm ready for 585 i don't know if i can kill this so (laughs) um even day to day and set to set it's uh mentally setting you up so and that's not saying there is a time and place for tempo work um especially when you're around injuries and things like that or in the off season like right after this meet, all of our joints are going to be wrecked. I mean, it's just it's just the nature of the beast. Like one of my lifters came up to me. This is his first powerlifting meet, and he's like, "Coach, something's wrong." I heard everywhere. I was like, Dude, four weeks out from a meet, <laughs> just how you're supposed to feel. Believe me. Hang on. <laughs> Welcome yeah. to powerlifting. If you don't like this feeling, pick a new sport. So, because <laughs> this is how you're going to feel. Um, and then we'll take your week off, and you'll feel better. And then you're going to feel really bad after the meet. So. Um, <laughs> So usually after a meet and things like that or injury situations or learning learning a new uh, movement pattern, of course, we slow things down uh, because the minute we go fast, you're going to revert right to what you did before because that's what your body knows. Yeah. So and, and moving fast, there is no time to think. So, you know, you when, when learning a movement pattern, things like that, we have to slow it down until you ingrain that movement pattern. But and, you know, joints are hurting, things like that. Yeah, there's the time and place for tempo work. But in general... For athletes, uh, I can't name a sport where if you are if you are strong and also fast, it's a benefit. It just it is, and in lifting weights, it definitely is a benefit. I mean, that's what I lean on more of the side that Ed Cohn does. Like West Side has days where like they have speed days, like dynamic days. I don't believe in those. I've tried them, and all that did was uh, it, it gave me joint pain. So from moving the weight fast and theirs is usually around 60 to 70%. And, uh, there was a lot of, especially on bench, snapping the joints into full extension type of thing going on. And so elbows that start hurting, same thing on squats. Uh, so what we do is just every single day, we try to move the bars fast on competitive lifts. Now, like on rows and things, it will just take a more of a get the job done type of thing. Yeah. Uh, if it's heavy, sure, move it quick, you know, but a lot of times I'll just vary it. Like, okay, I'll do a set nice and slow. I'll do a nice set, a set fast. I'll do a set, you know, on the assistance work. But any of our main big compound movements, we're looking to move them correctly and as swiftly as possible. So, and I mean, I, I don't know. I mean, other than that, I mean, the thing it's going to do is, is generally it's going to limit, let's say we're doing rep sets. Uh, meaning, I don't know, sets 10, sets of 8, whatever. Um, and this is another reason why I prescribe reps. 
a total reps, like a dose that Lonnie talks about. Because if I'm doing, I don't know, four or five for four sets of 10, it's a lot easier for me if I'm, I'm doing it in a way that I'm moving it as fast as possible because I'm record, recruiting more of my muscle fibers at any given, at any given rep, I wear myself out faster. So it's going to be very hard for me to hit three, four sets of 10 moving the bar as quickly and fast as possible because I'm wearing myself out fast. Now, if I slow down and uh, just kind of punch them out, I can work through 10, 12, maybe 15. Uh, whereas if I'm, I'm crushing every single rep, come rep six, seven, it's like, whoo. You know, basically, you just wore yourself out earlier than you needed to, which I don't see as a bad thing on a strength athlete. I mean, it might take us more sets then. So, uh, yeah, yeah. And that's that's another one of the, my reasons why I changed to prescribing a certain number. Like we're doing 30 reps and I want you to crush them all, you know, because if I said four sets of 10, then this might be bad. Most likely what's mm-hmm. going to happen, we're going to hold back. They're not going to crush it. They're going to hold back so they have the the energy left to do 10 because I told them to do 10. Whereas if I just tell them to do 30, I don't care how many sets it takes. I just want you to crush them all. They can do 15 sets of two. I don't care (laughs) as long as they move fast and we're still getting the same. We're getting the same total volume in while exerting more force force on every single rep. Mm -hmm. So I always like the more sets. The further I got in my career, I started doing a little fewer reps per set and more sets because I, I just felt a yes. little fresher as I stepped back up to the bar every time. You know, I, I'm sure there's a sweet spot there, you know. But. And there's a time and a place. I mean, there's a time and place where we'll just be like, okay, AMRAP, let's see how many you can do. <laughs> Brutal. And, uh, yeah, and it's, it's, it's also just fun, too. But yeah. And that can be as mentally – you can grow as much mentally from that as anything. So, but – no, that's kind of the throw it at the fan. Here's all the little bits and pieces about why I, I'm just a fan of, of, of moving quickly. Yeah. So. You know, Phil, it's very efficient. I mean, when for the longest time I did something similar. I mean, I was never a power lifter, but just at 135, 185, two and a quarter, that was specifically explosive work. Like on my way up to going, now I would only do in my life, a 405 was as high as I usually went, right? Because I'm done there at my best. You know, maybe I am doing sets of eight there. But the point is the speed work was built into the lighter sets, the ramp up, you know, yes. as opposed to a separate day. And yet as I got older, some days, almost like an undulating periodization, I'm not I'm just not going to go heavy every time. Instead of weeks and weeks in one mesocycle, just undulating periodization. And I would build in light days that were I might just do five sets of five, just speed work, you know, whether it's squat or bench or whatever, and maximum dynamic kind of effort, right? And kind of to your point, yeah, you can you can feel the quality. You get experienced with these things. You can. It's just a different kind of thing. And then surprisingly, sometimes the next day, I would even be kind of sore. I'm like, God, from that, from a lightweight. But you know, I went all out. Uh, making that bar move as fast as humanly possible. Yes. You know. So. Yep. That's like sprints. I mean, sprints is one of the most brutal things you can do, <laughs> and there's not a you're, – you're, you're not loading yourself at all. Oh, God. Good no. call. You know, you're Body just weight. exerting maximal force. <laughs> Devastating sprints are. So. Yeah. Uh, what are your thoughts, Mike, uh, without going into some gory details about the force velocity curve? <laughs> yeah. So without all the – 
velocity-based training and force velocity curve and all that stuff, which is useful. Um, yeah, I mean, if it's uh, an athlete, I can't really think of a sport that's played slow. <laughs> so just by, you know, said principle, at some point, you know, I've talked to Cal Dietz a lot about this too, and, you know, his philosophy is, which I agree with, very similar to all you guys, is, you know, at some point if somebody's new, they might just be weak. You know, if they're just weak, they just need to get stronger, period. But at some point, like you were saying with some of his professional NHL guys, if they're already squatting four or 500, he's taking them down to like 315 and just had them do multiple reps there just ridiculously fast, you know, because their ability to create, for lack of a better word, speed, velocity was missing. And that's the thing that's going to transfer to their sport to make them a better athlete where I think that's sometimes a harder sell to maybe your sport coach or your institution or wherever is easier to sell. Oh, they were doing 405. They're doing 550 now. Wow, that's mm-hmm. impressive. They Were they a better athlete? Brr, uh, you know, <laughs> yeah, hard to say. Mm-hmm. You know, we're saying, yeah, we they were at 405. We dropped them to 365, but they're moving it faster. You know, the people who... Yeah may not have the best comprehension of it it sounds like you went backwards right so just mm-hmm. thinking about the numbers in your head get stuck there um, and i think those conversations have infinitely gotten better over the last decade or so but um, so for most people i have unless they're really training for an athletic sport at first i don't talk a lot about it because i'll look at their videos and stuff to see what they're doing and a lot of times I don't want to mess with their form by putting another thought in their head. But at some point when I see they can accomplish reps and they look really good and really smooth, then I'm like, okay, you know, control the eccentric and then mm-hmm. on the concentric, move as fast as you can, keeping good form. Yes. You know, so a client posted a video of his front squats, which have been looking great. So now I'm like, okay, now I want you to move it faster. Because you can tell, and granted it was probably just fatigue on that particular day that it was looking a little bit slower. And again, that can be from fatigue. It can become from multiple things. But I know that he owns the movement well enough that I trust him to now think about moving it faster, mm-hmm. and it's not going to turn into a just complete poo show. <laughs> yeah. So, I, yeah, because I'm sure some of my clients listening are like, you've never, ever mentioned this. It's like, well, I want to make sure you're getting the work done. You're increasing yeah. in strength. And if you're making progress, probably not going to mess with that a lot. And then at some point when I see maybe you're starting to taper out or maybe you've got enough practice where it's really good, now we're going to talk a little bit more about those things because the reality of being doing stuff online is I don't have the luxury of watching them every day. Mm-hmm. If someone would come into the facility like Phil or you know when I train people here in person, I can push that a lot sooner because I get to watch every rep. So I can mm-hmm. see when they go off the rails and be like, okay, let's figure out what happened there. Or let's add bands or let's add chains or let's do something else that's going to force you to create basically more speed or is just going to bury you or change the movement. Maybe we're going to go to a safety squat bar because when it gets heavy, it's going to feel like a gorilla jumped on your back and it's trying to force your face into the ground, right? So you're going to want to compensate by trying to move faster through those ranges of motion. It just makes sense. I mean, even the, the morphology of it, you know, the, the type 2X or even type 2A fibers. Yeah. I mean, they're big. The big ones are the fast ones, you know. So it just seems logical yeah. to me that these would both be reasonable applications, you know, whether mm-hmm. you're after size or, or uh, 
strength or or whatever, you know. Yes. Um, yeah. I did have a guy just the other day. He was saying, you know, I know I said don't go on about the strength velocity curve. I would suggest listeners just go look up even Google image and get an, a picture yeah. of this. It's classic and it's real. And he was like, that predicts one RM amazingly well, you know. Yes. Um, mm-hmm. So, yeah, and of course it does. If you're like, like as say, if you're owning something and the bar velocity is crazy high, yeah, you can probably predict how much mm-hmm. weight you can. Obviously, as you add weight, it's gonna the velocity is gonna slow down and slow down and keep slowing down until I suppose at some point it goes to zero and you get stuck, you know, because it's yeah. so heavy. Yep. Yeah, the, the caveat with that is that you have to map it for yourself. Mm-hmm. You can look at some general ranges, but like Phil was saying, we've all seen lifters who, like I've watched this one lifter years ago, just kept adding 50 pounds to his deadlift, and each rep looked like he wasn't going to make it. And mm-hmm. like 250 pounds later, he finally hit his max. Yeah. It's like, what the hell? Just grinding. <laughs> That's lifter. a weird at a meet. Probably five years ago, and there was an older guy. Um, when I'm talking older, I'm, I'm talking like I think he was in his 70s. Oh wow! And he's deadlifting, and he like, he's in the warm up room with a 405, and it was like a six second lift. Oh! And I'm like, okay. He's like, what are you opening? I'm opening a 650. I was like, holy, <laughs> you're in <laughs> trouble. And like, literally everything from 405 to 650 moved the same speed. Yeah. Like it just, uh, he just. You know, it's like an old crane. Yeah. yeah. And I was like, wow, man, that was impressive. Okay. Well, I'll listen to you now. So right. yeah. <laughs> you know your body. You know, I would never guess that. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so it uh, does, it does emphasize the difference between um, the extreme agility and everything that goes in skill and everything that goes into sports versus just like you were saying about Eddie Cohn, you know, sit down and stand up. Yeah. Um, yeah. Because, yeah, I, you guys, as you guys were talking, I remember there was an old quote. I don't remember exactly what it was, but something about uh, where is the football player that can bench 405 very slowly and all of his lists very slowly? In the, He's the on the bench. On the, yeah. on the bench, right. Exactly. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So, yeah. Well, no, and I mean another thing that, that you don't think about is, again, speed work. So usually with people, a lot of things go wrong. Like like maximal loads show error or show weak points mm-hmm. because once they push maximally, something doesn't – it pushes harder to something else. Like let's say their hamstrings aren't holding up to the push that their quads are given. So they shoot their hips up a little bit in a squat and things like that. Um, you have no choice but to push maximally against a maximal load. So that's another reason why max lifts don't – generally don't always look perfect um you can mimic that with speed work like we can mimic okay where are you weak at by pushing maximally against the submaximal load you're gonna show that same weakness generally if you like if your hamstrings just aren't pushing as hard as your quads and you shoot your hips up and end up on your toes a little bit we should be able to see that theoretically by you pushing on like 585 80 percent quickly we're, we're gonna get that same you know, once once people push really hard, uh, generally something can go wrong, and and then we can see that at a non uh, a, a much safer submaximal load, and start fixing things. So and just also just get the time and the reps under the bar pushing maximally before we actually go for a max. Yeah. So and just get used to it. I mean, it's a learned skill. Hitting max lifts and maximal tension is a learned skill. 
We need to practice that a lot if you're going to if that's going to be your sport. Like that is the sport of powerlifting. The sport of powerlifting is pushing the heaviest weight you can three times. So we probably should practice that. So mm-hmm. specificity. Yeah. <sighs> okay. Yeah. Another right, thing I'll do for speed work is you can change exercise selection too. So if I have someone who's who has kettlebells and has used them and is proficient in say doing a kettlebell snatch, I may have them work up to a heavier load. Um, because I know that at some point they have to generate enough velocity to get the kettlebell over their head. It's just not going to mm-hmm. happen. Yep. Um, or a trap bar jump shrug or even just plyometric push-ups where I just want your hands to just barely come off the ground. You don't have to do anything yep. crazy. You know, just exercise selection a lot of times for especially intermediates can be useful because you know they're going to have to generate a fair amount of velocity just to complete the rep. I like that. Yeah, I mean, I, I would even do... Um... Not just the whole rep being speedy or like you're saying controlled eccentric then explode, but literally just pause like in a leg press or dumbbell presses, like just pause completely at the bottom and then like a dragster out of the gate. Boom. Yeah. So there's even different ways to do this, to, you know, to mess with your, uh, the the whole curve there. So, yeah. Taking the stretch shortening cycling out of it. It was an old Australian study that needed like a four-second pause, I think, on bench press to completely ameliorate it. But Interesting. Yeah, it's a completely different movement. Yep. Yeah. yeah. All righty, guys. Okay. Good stuff. Until next week. Iron Radio is accepting donations. If you like what we do, the professors, the scientists, the bodybuilding show promoters – the athletes themselves in powerlifting and bodybuilding. Um, please consider making a donation or maybe buying something from the ironradio.org uh, store. Uh, we also are accepting supporting members. So for $4 a month, which is frankly less than the bank sneaks out of your account in fees, you can step up and support a form of sort of public radio for the bodybuilding and powerlifting and strength community. The Iron Radio Podcast and all of the audio on ironradio.org is for informational purposes only. If you're interested in starting a diet or exercise program, it's important to check with your physician. Also seek the help of registered dietitians, athletic trainers, and qualified exercise physiologists in order to make the progress that you need.